everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Family Business Today, where every family business has a story to tell and a step to take to not only thrive, but working together, create a lasting family legacy. I'm your host, Greg Lewis. Our guest today is Paul Hood with Paul Hood Services located in Sylvania, Ohio. Paul is an author, a speaker, and an advisor to family-owned businesses. Paul obtained his undergraduate law degrees from Louisiana State University and a master's degree in taxation from Georgetown University Law Center. Paul has taught at the University of New Orleans, Northeastern University, the University of Toledo College of Law, and Ohio Northern University's Petit College of Law. Paul is a highly sought-after speaker and consultant due to his innate ability to see through complexities and explain difficult and even boring subjects in understandable and entertaining language. He minces no words in doing so. Paul has authored or co-authored nine books and over 500 professional articles on estate and tax planning and business valuation. Paul is the author of Buy-Sell Agreements, The Last Will and Testament for Your Business, as well as Yours, Mine, and Ours, Estate Planning for People in Blended or Step Families. Both books can be purchased on Amazon Books or at his website, www.paulhoodservices.com. Well, hey, Paul. How you doing? I am doing well. Thanks for joining me for this edition of Family Business Today. I've really been looking forward to hearing more about your thoughts on the importance of buy-sell agreements and estate planning for people in blended or step families. Well, looking forward to talking. Those two are my favorite subjects. Well, good. Well, uh, let's start off by saying I'm, I'm really curious about why you wrote your book about buy-sell agreements. You indicate in the book that it was personal. What's the backstory about that? When I was eight years old, during the summers when we were out of school, one day a week, we would eat lunch at my grandparents' house. And we would go and my, my mother's brother and my aunt and his kids would go eat there. One day a week, my grandparents came to our house, but we went to their house one day a week. Well, this one day, the kids sat at a different table than the adults, okay? And, um, but one day, the adult table was rather animated. And all I heard was Uncle Bobby got fired and Papa was getting redeemed. Hmm. And those were the two words I heard. And the next morning, on the local radio show, uh, our you know our local radio show that was you know owned for forty years in in Alexandria, Louisiana. They were talking about it on the radio. The brouhaha at Alexandria Siege. And fast forward, uh, my grandfather dies when I'm a junior in law school, and I never had a chance to talk to him about it. And then my uncle dies uh, prematurely of a heart attack. So I didn't get a chance to talk to him about it. But I'm at the Louisiana Secretary of State's office one day uh, waiting on some, some documents from them. And while I'm waiting, I, I get curious and I pull the charter for our company. It was founded in 1923. 
so at this at 1968 when this happened it was 45 years old the company had over 100 employees so it was a pretty good sized business well the buy sell language is normally not in a public document no okay well this this you know this was 1923 and the and the articles of incorporation included the public buy sell agreement language hmm. and it was my grandfather uh was 10 years younger than his partner and they considered themselves 50 50 but my grandfather deferred to him and took 49 and you can you can imagine what happened sure okay well my grandfather brought my uncle into the business his partner brought his son into the business and the two boys did not see eye to eye. So the son of, of my grandfather's partner worked on him until one day he couldn't take it anymore, and he fired my uncle. And triggered in the, in the articles was a, believe it or not, a perpetual call by the majority stockholder at book value. Oh, wow. It had been sitting there like a time bomb waiting to go off for 45 years. Wow. And, uh, of course, you know, Lady Karma always comes back and, and squares the books. <laughs> and she did in this case because the son ended up taking over the business. But he was he liked to dabble in politics. And he didn't pay attention to the consolidation of the farming business because this was a business that serviced local farmers. And all of a sudden, you know, the local small farms got rolled into big farms that didn't do business with them. And, and the company went into a Chapter 7 bankruptcy like in 1987. So we, we were probably the only family. I mean, I know they took a bunch of money out of it because they've endowed a couple of things. Sure. Um, sure. But, but um, you know, my grandfather got money out of it, but it was book value as opposed to fair market value. And you and I both know in a business that's been around 45 years that there's going to be and has over 100 employees, book value is a heck of a lot lower than right. fair market value. Right, right. Well, so, thanks for so sharing. What, so that's well, how you what, got involved in it. Well, basically, yeah. And 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 I I couldn't believe that that was the the, the provision. And and then my first assignment in the law firm that I went to work for when I got out of Georgetown, what we had um, some litigating partners who represented um, uh, legal malpractice insurance companies. And, and they walked down to my office on my third day and they said, Hey, we want you to look at this buy sell agreement that our, our insured prepared. Hmm. Now our insured between the time of preparing this document and the present had become a confirmed federal United States district court judge. Hmm. Okay. And, and, and the agreement had a word in it. And I looked at it and I said, why is that there? And they said, well, it's your job to talk to the judge about it because, you know, we're, we're going to have to take his deposition or, or his deposition is going to get taken. And we don't, we want to know without asking him ourselves from a litigation standpoint. So I bring the judge to town because he wasn't from, from the New Orleans area. Um, 
took him to lunch. Um, and then eventually toward the end of the lunch, got around to the buy sell agreement and asked him, you know, what, what were you trying to do here? And he said, well, you know, sometimes in small towns, you, you, you put in an action word, you know, he goes, because then they got to come back to you to, to, for help. And of course, by then he wasn't helping. And, 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 and a lot of times these cases, uh, Greg, because I get asked about them all the time. I get, you know, I get consulted about buy sell agreements every day. And, you know, I've looked at, I mean, I've had a hand in probably drafting or editing or, or whatever. I mean, at least a thousand buy sell agreements. I mean, I, you know, there aren't too many people in the country, you know, maybe one or two that have more experience with them than I do. So I've seen them. So insurance companies ask me these questions too. And the, there's a cycle of life. The lawyer drafts the agreement, they sign it, it goes into a drawer until a triggering event occurs. Mm -hmm. And then they figure out they got a problem. And then there's litigation. And then the losers sue the lawyer and the lawyer's malpractice insurance company for malpractice. It's just, <laughs> I, I call it the circle of life. <laughs> you come full circle. So. Good circle, yeah. Let's see what you're saying. Well, thanks Thanks for sharing sharing that, uh, Paul. Uh, uh, this this next next question really uh, 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 I run into it often as a, um, a family business advisor, and I know that you do, and anyone else that that works with a family a family, especially on their estate planning. Uh, probably sometime during uh, some of uh, our family business lives, uh, there may have been an event called a divorce or or a death and a remarriage or whatever. But what makes estate planning for these blended or step families so difficult and different from estate planning for couples who've only had one marital relationship? Well, you know, um, a, a lawyer in Atlanta uh, Richard Barnes uh, wrote a book. In fact, really, Richard's book that he wrote for Nolo Press back in 2009 and, and my book that came out this year are really about the only two books for the lay audience on estate planning for blended families. Uh, Richard's book is a little more general. Uh, it, it probably has a lot more estate, general estate planning information and some nuances of, of – uh, blended family issues my book drills down like a laser beam on the blended family issues mm -hmm. but richard richard made a comment that i think is absolutely spot on he said what makes these these clients so difficult is because they manage relationships squared and and there's a lot of truth to that um i found and one of the reasons why, I mean, because I've been writing and speaking about uh, estate planning for blended families for 30 years. And the reason why is because they were always my most challenging clients mm -hmm. because the traditional single relationship techniques that we use every day, if used in a blended family context, can be downright dangerous, can result in disinheriting um, the kids of the first of the first uh, spouse to die, uh, you know, joint tenancy, for example. I mean, that's a classic, mm -hmm. you know, because the, the surviving spouse, the step parent becomes the full owner. 
And good luck getting them ever to give anything to their stepkids because they never do. Um, they say they will while the, the other spouse is alive, but then reality hits. Their own kids object, and uh, and they don't. So um, that's really what makes it. And then, you know, life happened to me, and, and I ended up with my own blended family. Sure. So it's a kind of a mix of, of all the experiences that I had uh, uh, thinking about and writing about and speaking about and working with, um, plant, you know, clients that had blended families. And then I got hit with my own, um, you know, it, it just, it, it sort of brought the, the issues home uh, even, even to a greater extent. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. Um, well, let's, 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 Go a little bit more about the buy-sell agreements. Um, uh, uh, like you and like myself as family business advisors, we work with um, uh, a lot of different uh, families and, and, and situations that they're in. But also, uh, I work with a number of lawyers who eventually create the legal buy-sell agreement. And I have to say that in my in my time, I've never seen two buy-sell agreements who have been exactly the same. But so in your opinion, what's the number one fatal mistake that most lawyers make when drafting the buy-sell agreement? I believe that the number one fatal mistake and unfortunately i see this all the time uh in fact it's really the general rule it's not the exception um is a is a lack of experience administering a buy sell agreement once a triggering event has happened because you see it's easy to write down procedures in a buy-sell agreement, in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. you know, I'll give you a classic example. What often happens is the triggering event happens, and it says that the, the valuation has to be done in 30 days. Well, you know, I've, I have worked through more than 500 business valuations in my career. I wrote a book. My first national book is about business valuation with Tim Lee from Mercer Capital in Memphis. And, and I'm going to tell you what, almost never does your client answer the appraiser's information document request within 30 days. And what ends up happening is the agreement is drafted as, as if the valuation is going to be done in 30 days and then everything else gets crammed in or, or, or becomes um, ambiguous under the agreement when it takes eight months to prepare the valuation. Hmm. That's probably the, if I had the 30 days provision is probably the most common hmm. mistake I see. Probably the second most common mistake is what I call the, the appraiser annuity uh, clause. You pick an appraiser. I pick an appraiser. Those two appraisers pick an appraiser. <laughs> you know, and then and then we're paying for three appraisals. Wow. And yeah, you know, that makes you feel better, but there's a lot better way to do that. Because, when, you know, 
it's easy to, to put that in and have the client sign it. It's another thing to tell them, oh, that appraisal is going to cost you, you know, $10,000, $15,000 times three. And you're going to be asked to pay for half of that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, they're like, you know, you should have told me that, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so really, those two, I think it's, I, you really, yeah, at being asked to administer your own document um, so you can see where the, the holes and the sure a- ambiguities and things like that. And I think, unfortunately, most most people don't don't do enough of this to have had that experience. Right. So they draft these things. You know, it's one thing to write the Queen's English. It's another thing to administer. It. Very good. Very good. Well, well, let's let's talk about that a little, little bit uh, more here. Uh, I, I know we we talk to uh, uh, families who have uh, multiple children, and many times there's some of the children are working in the business, and there's some that are not working in the business, and uh, the the owner, uh, which many times is not only. Uh, uh, the the husband or wife, but it's also uh, their spouse, and we hear this term. We want to treat our children equally, uh, but but in, re- in reality, what we want to do is to treat them fairly. Uh, so, where a significant owner has a blended or step family, give give us an example of why the planning can be so challenging in these situations. Well. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and there's real there's two possibilities, okay. Mm-hmm. The first is where the stepchild, or at least one stepchild, is working in the business, okay. Mm-hmm. And then the other scenario is is where the stepchildren do not work in the business, mm-hmm. and that's probably the more common scenario. But yeah. uh, but mm-hmm. I've but I've seen both. If I had to give you a breakdown, it's probably twenty five seventy five, okay. Uh, with the 75 being the stepkids not being in the business, okay? Well, if there's an agreement between the couple to treat those kids equally, probably the biggest mistake I see made is a belief that they can leave the business to the kids involved in the business and then the operating real estate, which is often held in a separate entity for tax purposes and, and, and liability purposes, frankly, mm-hmm. probably more so than tax. Um, and there's a lease between the operating company and the, re- and the real estate company. Mm-hmm. And the real estate company is usually uh, a flow-through tax entity, an S-corp or an LLC that's taxed as a partnership. Operating company may maybe a, a C Corp, you know, um, hmm. um, and often is, you know, for older businesses, uh, often is, um, but they say, okay, we want to give the uninvolved kids, the operating real estate, and then the kids who are in the business, uh, the business. And that creates a problem. I call the polarization issue. Yep. And what you have essentially done is created the battlefield over the rent. And unless that lease is very carefully crafted to call for really 
pretty often periodic uh, rent adjustments to fair market value rent as determined by an independent third-party real estate appraiser, um, you have created the battlefield. Um, and, and while they, 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 were they were trying to be fair, um, uh, fairness has come at a, at a it's a pyrrhic victory. It, it, it has come at a huge cost. So um, sometimes in those situations, the family's actually better off selling the business and the real estate if if they truly want to make a dollar for dollar um fairness uh right. or, mm -hmm. or, or equal treatment um otherwise you know they're gonna have to live with you know uh, you know close only counts and horseshoes and hand grenades you know you you you, you may not be perfectly you know equal or fair or anything like that but you're just doing the best you could um so yeah, that that's, you know, but once again, sometimes and probably the toughest situations are in the book, uh, Greg, uh, which I which I, I know I sent you. Um, I'm talking about the blended family book. Mm -hmm. I discuss six types, archetypes of, of blended families because they, they, they blended families. Just just saying it's a blended family doesn't give me much information. Because they're very different. Mm -hmm. And the book's title is Yours, Mine, and Ours, mm -hmm. which is one of the six arch to archetypes. And it's that one that I find is the most is the most difficult in estate planning. Because mm -hmm. yours view view ours as not full members of the family. Ours I mean, uh, 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 mine view ours as not full members of the family, which is richly ironic, don't you think? Because <laughs> the ours are the only ones who share the parents. Right. You know, everybody else has a step parent. Um, but I'm telling you that that those that situation is is probably the toughest and the most challenging, especially if the ours are the ones who are in the business and the mine and yours are not because they do not view their half sibling or their step sibling as counting. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. They just don't, um, you know, and actually in this case, it's a half sibling. Yeah. And a step sibling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you've, you've, it's, it's a tough, that's probably the toughest situation. So, um, you know, once again, when you when you take on or add the layer of complexity of, of a blended family um, to a family business where less than all of the descendants are involved in the business as W-2 employees, mm -hmm. um, you have created a very, very complex set of facts. And sometimes, you know, discretion being the better part of valor, uh, you're better off. The owner's better off selling the company mm -hmm. because they they maximize what they get um, uh, while they're alive and, and able to be a consultant and help the buyers. And because what invariably happens is if they don't sell, um, you know, uh, the founder dies, 
the business flounders and up selling it for 40, 40 cents for, uh, on the dollar of what they could have gotten right. while dad was alive. And really that, you know, the fam, the whole, you know, we're not, we're, you know, I know we're not, we're, we're not here to talk about family business uh, succession planning uh, at, per se here, but probably the biggest mistake that I see made by lawyers whose clients have interests in family, significant interests in family businesses, where there is also the talk of family business succession planning is the lawyers conflate those two processes, which hmm. really are properly separate processes because that family business has a, has a monetary value to it. And when you, when you conflate that with some of the emotional uh, and psychological issues um, and then get into the, you know, because the business has certain interests in its succession planning. The owner has certain interests in, in his or her estate planning. And those are two really disparate, separate interests. Mm -hmm. So um, that's probably the mistake I see made most often is people conflate those two when they need to be separate, freestanding mm -hmm. issues. Good, good point. Well, well said. Well said. Well, Paul, you, uh, we, we know that that one of the biggest uh, important things is, is when you're starting to think about transition plan, is communications, communications, and communications uh, to your family members. But but let's talk a little bit about the buy sell agreement. When, when should you bring family members? Uh, both in the business and out of the business into the conversation about the buy-sell agreement? As soon as possible is my answer. Um, That's before the agreement or after if, the agreement's if, been completed? Well, no, no. If, if, if there's no agreement yet, bring them in before. Good. Okay. See, one, one, of the most, one of the most important conversations that I believe a business family uh, needs to have every three to five years. Uh, my mentor, the late Jerry Levan, called it the see the keeper sell discussion. And probably every three to five years, uh, the family needs to come together. And, and 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 when I say family, Greg, I don't mean just the adults. If they're teenagers, if they're if as long as really down to probably age ten or twelve. They need to be in this meeting. And you'd say, well, I don't know if that's, that's a good idea. Trust me, it is. Because in the family, the, what the family will do is, um, it, and, and those, those types of meetings uh, often need to be facilitated by somebody who knows how to facilitate a meeting like that yeah. when emotions can, 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 can run hot. Yes. Okay. Um, but, um, the beauty of that is, is the family, if they want to stay in business together, they recommit to it. You know, everybody recommits to the, the, the common goal and, uh, or the, or if they say, okay, well, you know, we need to, uh, sell this division or, or reorganize this division or, or get into this other line of business, uh, that, that's a, uh, you know, a related line that, that we think we could service and, and, you know, make a margin on, um, and do that. Um, I, I think that I think that um, 
the discuss and the buy sell agreement is a perfect context because suppose you had a senior generation that in their mind's eye that they're going to pass the business down to their kids. Well, unless you have those kids in the discussion, you they're they're the ultimate owners, okay? Or at least that's what the plan is. Those kids may not have any interest in owning that business. They may have no interest. I mean, it, and I know doing what you do, you've had the same conversations with numerous kids that I've had. Sure. And sometimes these kids are in their 60s <laughs> yeah. and they're like, I never wanted to work here. This was not my life dream. I was forced to work here because if I had not done so, I would have been perceived to have been disloyal to dad and to the family business. Mm -hmm. yep. and, and, and those are the first ones to want to sell at a discount when dad dies, you know, like free at last, free at last. Thank God almighty free at last. Yeah. I've even had them say that. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't just bring that up. I mean, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true yes so many of us uh, have have experienced that uh, both from being in family business ourselves and also working with them so i i get that well uh I, let's let's uh briefly talk about a little bit more about valuations um uh i know that my dad and uh uh so many others from that uh generation uh, when you say we, we need to have a valuation of your business uh, to create a successful buy-sell agreement and transition and say, well, you know, I think my business is worth this or the books or the book value says that it's this. Uh, and we know that there's all kinds of valuations, whether there's a valuation, whether you're going to sell the company or gift the company to your family members, or if you're going to do an ESOP to your employees, or you're going to do a direct sale to market. I mean, there's there's so many different colors of valuations out there. But but specifically, when a business owner says that they'll just use the book value, and, and most of the time they say we want to do that because we don't want to have to pay for that independent valuation of their business. Why is using book value such really a major mistake in a buy-sell agreement? Well, first of all, you know, it, it was, it, it, it hurt my family. Okay. I, you know, I have personal experience on that front mm -hmm. I, and I, and I have, I, I did not have access to the, to the financial, the 1968 financials of that company. Uh, but I can virtually promise you, but I'll give you one example. And it's one in my in in in, in my speech outlines on on valuation and buy sell agreements. There was a case in the in New Jersey courts where the estate's interest in a tech company, the book value was one hundred eighty seven thousand dollars, and the buy sell agreement said you get one hundred eighty seven thousand dollars on redemption. The fair market value of the estate's interest was $11.5 million. Oh, yeah, a lot of difference. little delta there, isn't it? <laughs> well, the uh, the district court or the, the state, uh, New Jersey state court, 
said, well, you're, you, this is what you agreed to. You know, this is what the decedent agreed to. And the Court of Appeals said, yep, you know, they affirmed. And the New Jersey Supreme Court didn't take writs. So book value cost that estate, you know, almost $11.3 million. Wow. Do you ever really want to risk using book value? Right. And, 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 and how I normally get around this, Greg, is when somebody says that, I said, well, that's, you're assuming that you're going to be the surviving winner uh, in the event. Mm -hmm. You're assuming that your partner is going to die before you. Mm -hmm. Now, now, now flip the, the script mm -hmm. and you're dying first. Mm -hmm. Do you really want your heirs to get a fraction of what you worked so hard to create? They're like, well, hell no. <laughs> that normally cures uh you know um uh, I, I don't know if you were gonna ask me about about the fire drill but this kind of leads right into it um a lot of times on an airplane you know if i you know normally i have my earbuds in listen to music but somebody else uh, you know somebody else strike up a conversation next to me and 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 you know i ask them so well, do y'all have a business yeah we do I said, do you have partners? Yeah. So y'all got to buy a sell agreement. I said, yeah. Um, I said, do you know what's in it? Said, no, he goes, we signed it and I'll, and I'll put it in the drawer and, you know, we just rocking along and, 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 and doing business. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I want you to engage me for a minute in, in going back to your childhood. So remember we played make believe and what if. So we're going to play a game called the fire drill. So when you get home, I want you to pull out your buy-sell agreement. And I want you to play that game. And I want you to pretend as if a triggering event has just occurred. Might be your death, might be your partner's death, might be a divorce. Whatever a triggering event is under your agreement. And then I want you to walk through your agreement from soup to nuts. You know, what's the valuation date? Who determines the value? How's value to be determined? How's what's if there's consideration? What's the price? You know, what's the price? How is it to be paid? Does does it permit payment in installments or with a note? If so, what are the terms of the note? What's the interest rate? Does the note provide for security, securing repayment of the note? I said, what you're going to find. In about 90%, in my experience, and this is over 30 years, in my experience, 90%, one of two things will have just hypothetically happened, Greg. One of them will have just been royally screwed, okay, because of absolutely uh, one-sided uh, results. Or two, there is such a significant ambiguity in the process of determining the price and when the, when the price is going to be paid and when the closing is. And, you know, that 30 day valuation issue often leads off one of those cases. Yeah. Um, I said, and I said, so I said, then that means the lawyers win. Okay. Because now, now you have something that's that, you know, uh, suggestive of litigation. And when I work with, you know, legal malpractice carriers, 
when I tell them, you know, something suggestive, you know, your client did something that was suggestive of litigation. And then, of course, I say the magic words for them, which means open up the checkbook, uh, is your, your, your client's work fell below the standard of care. Hmm. And as soon as I hear that, they're like, Paul, don't tell me that. You know, because that means I got to open this checkbook and, and you know, I got to pay another claim. Yeah. Um, so um, I said, the good news is, is that this was a fire drill. It didn't happen. I said, but the bad news is the clock is ticking. Hmm. And I said, I said, and let me tell you something. As soon as that triggering event occurs, the ox is in the ditch and it's too late to fix it because hmm. The party that is benefited by the mistake, and it is a mistake in almost every case, it's just a failure to think it all the way through as a draftsman. It's like I said, notor lawyers drafting a buy-sell agreement, Greg, I hate to tell you this, is dreadful. It's dreadful. I mean, hmm. I'm shocked. And, and, and I don't care what size law firm it is. I have, I have had the same lousy work done by 1,000 lawyer law firms as by sole practitioner. Hmm. Um, and, and, and a lot of times it happens in big firms because the corporate people draft the buy-sell agreements but don't have the estate planning um, experience with mm -hmm. it. And, and the estate planners never get any input on the agreement because it's the corporation guy's, you know, call. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in, 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 you know, the estate planners often don't have the corporate experience. I was blessed in the firm I worked in and was trained by, we were the corporate and the tax guys. So we had to draft both. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the very first, very first book I wrote for Prentice Hall in 89 was about buy sell agreements. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it just, it's one of those things where it, it, there aren't many people that have the experience on both sides. And I think that that's what ends up leading to um, uh, the lousy drafting that's, sure. that's out there. Sure. Well, thank you, Paul. Appreciate that very much. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together. Some very thoughtful uh, conversation and some great answers to some great uh, questions that I, I know that uh, our listeners will appreciate. Uh, uh, but uh, what are some closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners uh, as we leave for today? Well, um, my website, www.paulhoodservices.com, I have a number of tools um, about buy-sell agreements. And these are, these are things that are referenced in my book, Buy-Sell Agreements, The Last Will and Testament for a Business. Um, and, and probably the most helpful client assistance tool I ever I ever prepared and, and I've, I've, I've had it for over 30 years is, and it's on it's on my website it's the buy sell options grid and it helps people on one page because the, there are two axes the vertical axis are, are various triggering events and the horizontal axis are the responses to those triggering events and you're able to check the box on a on an event by event basis because the response is not going to, you know, you can't use a one response fits all. Um, it's going to vary depending on what the triggering event is. And this is on one page. Clients love it. And, 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 and it's great as for lawyers 
who you know are, are 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 conscientious and they get their clients to come in and review them every three to five years, you know the client hadn't looked at the agreement and they're not going to read it. Okay, but you pull that one page out where they checked, and they their recall is almost instantaneous. Like oh yeah, I remember this agreement and and I understand it. They may not know all the ins and outs of the the you know the the note you know, what the requirements are and all that stuff. And then they weren't, they didn't know that to begin with, but they know the guts of the agreement. Mm -hmm. And really in my experience, um, uh, clients knowledge of that contract exceeds their knowledge of their estate planning documents Mm -hmm. because they get it because, and I think, I think it's because the tool is that effective. So it's on my website. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you, Paul. Well, Paul, Thank you for being my guest on Family Business Today. Please accept our best wishes for continued success for you and for your work with private and public business leaders. To well, learn same, more, same. go ahead. No, I was going to say the, the same. The same to you, and 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 I'll even I'll even be magnanimous and say go balls. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Except uh, on October 8th. <laughs> <laughs> when we play the LSU Tigers. Well, to learn more about Paul Hood, visit his website at www.paulhoodservices.com. Thank you for joining us for the Family Business Today podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Center for Family Business, located in Nashville, Tennessee. Our passion is to help families create a positive environment where the family thrives the business performs, and working together create a lasting family legacy. Would you like the opportunity to be in a small group community of like-minded family business owners, leaders, and get access to years of experience and wisdom from other family business executives just like you? If you answered yes, I would like to invite you to consider joining a family business mastermind group. To learn more, visit our website at www thefamilybusinessmastermind.com. If you want to talk, we will listen. So until next time, thanks for joining us.